Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Lily Gorin with New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. And today it is my pleasure to host co-authors Brian Harrison and Melissa Michelson to discuss their recent collaboration, Listen, We Need to Talk, How to Change Attitude About LGBT. Right. After reading through this book, I found myself recommending it to a colleague in communication studies since it does span disciplines, including political science, communication, LGBT studies, and from my perspective, also some some interesting things with regard to um, popular culture. I am delighted to speak with Brian and Melissa about their book and and their recent sort of book tour. I believe you were on because I was following you guys on Twitter. Um, but first, I want to ask you a little bit about yourselves to tell us a little bit about yourself and, um, you know, how you came to this particular thesis and this research investigation. Brian, let's start with you. Sure. Uh, well, my PhD is from Northwestern, and I have a master's degree in communication, uh, specifically in public relations and advertising. So I think a background both in, in communication, in media, and then obviously in political science and political psychology at Northwestern all sort of brought me to the idea that these disciplines speak to each other in an interesting way. And given current events, given what's going on in the world, especially about seven years ago when Melissa and I started the book, um, it seemed like we found a good way to apply a lot of theory in these sort of related but somewhat disconnected disciplines to apply to uh, LGBT rights and public opinion toward LGBT people and to explain why attitudes were changing so quickly. And so without delving too much into the book, that's sort of a little bit about my background and how we came to the topic in the first place. Great. Melissa? Well, really, I got interested in this topic because of Brian for about 15 years before I had met him, I was doing work on minority politics and especially on Latino politics and how to get more people of color to vote. And Brian's original idea when we met was that, well, LGBT folks are another minority group and maybe we could do something to get them to vote. Turns out that experiment didn't happen. That work wasn't possible at that time, but it did start our partnership and led us to do the work that's in this book. And, and that's, you know, what we're here to talk about. So I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, you sort of go into this book and you, you both are sort of curious as to why there was such rapid change around issues, um, affecting the LGBT community, particularly with regard to same sex marriage. So can you talk a little bit about the thesis of your book and the process that you undertook to investigate your, you know, the hypothesis that you ultimately came up with for this work? Sure. Well, we noticed uh, sort of the canonical work in political science makes the point that on average, public opinion doesn't move very quickly over time. And you can look at Gallup polls from you know 50 years ago that show issue preferences. Again, on average, um, generally the line is pretty flat. And we noticed starting in 2009, 2010, um, that trend was starting to change dramatically. Um, it had already changed uh, dramatically sort of in the last five or 10 years prior to when we began our work. But 
it changed even more between 2009 and 2015, 16, when we were finishing the book. So partially, we were interested in explaining this change, why we saw such dramatic change on this set of issues in a, in a different way than others. The second thing that I want to mention is we wanted, we wanted to figure out how to change minds. Um, not only did we want to study it from a scientific perspective, but we do think that LGBT rights are human rights, and we wanted to be engaged in um, what Melissa and others have, have dubbed pracademics, um, engaging in real political work, not just sort of sitting in our offices on campus and pondering deep thoughts. We wanted to actually engage with groups that are doing advocacy that are changing hearts and minds because we thought that you know these issues were important in the real world. And so we wanted to engage them on that level too, as well. And Melissa, do you want to add anything to that? No, I think that really sums it up nicely. It was an unusual pattern in public opinion change and something that was making us happy, but we also wanted to see if we could help. Um, and, and you developed the theory of dissonant identity priming as, as the sort of theory that you're going to then test and that you do test in the course of your experiments. Can you explain a little bit about the theory and also how you conceived of it and how you tested it to prove or investigate the theory itself? Sure. So the idea of dissonant identity priming is that we all categorize ourselves into in-groups and out-groups, and we tend to favor people in our in-groups. We're more likely to listen to them. We're more likely to process information that they give to us. And so the idea is that if you can establish a shared in-group identity with somebody by priming that shared in-group identity, then they're going to be more likely to listen to you and, and to want to agree with you. And we think that that's especially likely to happen when they share an attitude or an opinion with you that is dissonant, that is surprising or counter-stereotypical. So, for example, some of our most powerful experiments were done using shared identity as fans of a football team or of football in general. You don't expect folks who are really into football or who are football players to be in favor of LGBT rights. And so that's dissonant, that's counter-stereotypical, and people are going to be more attentive to that sort of information, more likely to process it, more likely to remember it. So we're priming these shared identities between the messenger and the receiver of the communication, possibly based on a shared identity as a fan of, say, the Green Bay Packers, which is one of our experiments. And then we're sharing this dissonant piece of information about how uh, you can be a football fan or a football star and also be a supporter of LGBT rights. And then we tested that with all different identities, not just whether or not you're a fan of the Green Bay Packers, but different sports identities, different partisan identities, different ethno-racial identities, and then also identity as somebody who is religious. And were there any in the in the groups that you tested that were surprising outcomes aside from, as you noted, the, the sort of um, the masculine fans or the, the masculine sports of football and hockey. Um, but it, among the other groups that you tested, um, what was surprising and what wasn't? I think how we got started was actually from a surprise. Um, in an experiment that's in the book but doesn't directly test the theory, our very first experiment um, really got us thinking about what was going on. So it was with an organization 
And um, we, we tried to partner with advocacy groups as often as possible just because for, for a variety of reasons. They are sort of doing the work on the ground. We wanted to make sure to answer questions that they were actually interested in. So it might, our work might have some real world effect. And we were working with a group um, trying to figure out how to increase donations to their, to their organization. And so our idea was um, sort of based on other, other work that we had seen and other advocacy work that we had seen. And it was to personalize the issue, to personalize LGBT rights. And then with the, the way that we initially measured that was we had a, an experiment where one script said, uh, was where the caller came out on the phone and said, as a gay man or as a lesbian or as a bisexual person, or as a transgender person, uh, I was really proud of my home state of Iowa when, you know, when we've seen all these gains that we've seen. And the control didn't have that self-disclosure, didn't have that personalization. And so what we found actually was people were less likely to donate to this organization when the caller came out on the phone. Now, we were surprised because the the population of the study was actually previous supporters of the organization. And there were people that we knew were already predisposed to be supportive of LGBT rights. And that became our first publication in political behavior in 2010. And I mentioned that it was surprising because it got us thinking about, huh, what, what's really going on here? And when folks were less likely to donate when a caller came out, got us thinking about this us versus them, this social identity theory work, that when you trigger a difference in someone, that can have a whole bunch of downstream effects of actually making people less supportive of the thing that you're trying to make them more supportive of. And that got us thinking, okay, how can we establish a shared connection, something that people have in common? rather than, you know, what they have in difference. So that really got us thinking down the road of, you know, a lot of uh, social psychology, a lot of the communication literature that talks about priming, identity priming, um, just, to, just to, again, to trigger something in common rather than something in difference. And that really was the beginning of the theory. And then, as Melissa said, we conducted um, 17 experiments over the course of the next four or five years um, that make their way into the book to test this idea of you know emphasizing what we have in common and what we share rather than where we're different and how we're you know members of outgroups. And and so to some degree uh, a little bit of a follow up and I ask you how how is your research unique from previous research on identity priming and public opinion? And this goes to some of the issues that you've, you know, you sort of highlighted with regard to um, adaptation and the, the rapid shift on public opi- in public opinion with regard to LGBT issues. Well, one thing is, is it is on LGBT rights and there is not a lot of scholarship, you know, firmly rooted in political science that actually looks at LGBT uh, public opinion toward LGBT people and policy. So that's one sort of easy way that it's different. But in terms of theory, one key way that we think that the work is different is that prior work looked at the effect of priming an identity on attitudes about that identity. So, for example, race of color effects. If you have a, a caller of a, the same race as the recipient of the call, how does that change subsequent answers on policies relevant to the identity that's being primed? What we do is we prime an identity that really has nothing to do with the policy questions that we're asking about or the, the, the opinion questions we're asking about. So like Melissa mentioned, what we're doing is we're priming black identity. We're creating this, uh, this race of color effect. 
but then showing that it translates to other issue areas, not just ones that directly relate to the identity that we're priming. And and so in part of the book is is really um, also devoted to this question, as you noted, um, pracademics. Um, and so you're you're directing some of your efforts around research towards advocacy. Um, and so I guess the curiosity in this case and the and the interest in this case is about the rapid change of opinion. Um, and so how does that translate potentially uh, with regard to advocacy in this sphere and also possibly in other spheres? I think it's really important to allow and encourage folks to do work that's interactive with real world organizations and real world political actors. I think it's even more relevant now that often academia and academics are criticized for doing work that nobody reads, that doesn't have any social benefit. I think a lot of us who are political scientists went into this field because we love politics and we care about politics and we want to be involved. And so academics means merging your passion for politics, your interest in the real world, whether that's you know, elections or social justice or whatever it is, and making that part of your academic research so that you're having an impact in the real world, making sure that your work is grounded in the real world by doing it in cooperation with real world actors, but at the same time contributing to serious scholarship. And we did get some criticism from, from certain folks saying, well, you're just advocates. And I I guess I I quibble with the word just. We're not just advocates. We're social scientists, and we're using methods and theories that are tried and true and have been used by many other people in many cases for, you know, many decades. But it's true that we do advocate for a position, and we don't look at how to decrease support for LGBT rights. That We think that's a normatively bad thing. We think that it's more consistent with our country to... Um, to strengthen individual rights and to treat people equally under the law. And so I guess Melissa and I are unapologetic about the the idea that, yes, we do advocate for a position. We're happy to talk about it. It's not a hidden agenda. Um, but being a social scientist doesn't mean that you have to sort of check your political beliefs at the door. You just have to be open about them and be sure to rely on unbiased science to prove what you're arguing. And and so and I just I want to add. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm That's I'm fine. so excited about this topic that I just have to keep talking about it. So I went to graduate school because my undergraduate professor, Dr. Hamilton, told me that going to grad school and writing books was a way to change the world, make the world a better place. And so I feel like that's exactly what Brian and I are doing. Right? We are doing exactly what it is that I came here to do all those decades ago, and. So, yeah, not only am I unapologetic about it, I'm like, darn right, I'm an advocate. Darn right, I'm working for social justice. Like, that's why I'm here, right? That's why I became a political science professor, to fight for social justice. So, and, you know, and so as, as, as a political scientist, and I, and, you know, and I, I certainly hear this from um, other colleagues, and, and I engage in a lot of civic engagement in terms of my class classroom activities, um, which is, again, different from, you know, research. Um, but you see this, do you see your work here as also a form of civic, civic engagement? Yeah, absolutely, because we are engaged in what's going on in, in a political arena, in a civic arena. And engagement doesn't just mean voting, right? It doesn't right. just mean protesting. 
can also mean changing people's minds because public opinion matters, right? That's part of the point of the book too. Public opinion matters. It drives public policy. So if you want to change public policy, if you want to change the rules of the game. And and that brings me to my next question with regard to the research itself is where do you see, if you do see some of the same kinds of rapid shifts in public opinion around other issues, are there other particular policy issues that you might want to try some of the same experiments on? Um, and where do you see potentially more entrenched public opinion that may be much more difficult to shift? Well, there's one thing I want to point out, which actually isn't your question. Okay. I, I feel like a, a presidential candidate in That's the fine. debate answering the question I want to answer. Um, but when we talk about rapid change, I'd like to make the point that it's rapid change, but we acknowledge the arc of LGBT history is actually longer right. than marriage. So public opinion didn't uh, on LGBT rights and people didn't start in 1996 when you know polling started asking people about this. Um, you know, this has been going on for hundreds of years um, in our country. Uh, the 20th century itself was a very difficult time for LGBT, LGBT people in history. Um, you know, the Lavender Scare, LGBT people were purged from government, they were prosecuted, they were persecuted, um, and public opinion w- didn't change for a really long time. Um, so we don't want to give the, you know, the impression that, oh, look, you know, all of a sudden things moved quickly. They did within the scope of the last 15 to 20 years, but in the longer arc of LGBT history, you know, it's the recent history that we're really looking at. And I like to point that out because, you know, we're not ignorant of, of history. Um, so we did see, you know, rapid change within the last 15 to 20 years. And there really aren't a whole lot of other issues that have seen this kind of change. Um, attitude change, to, uh, I'm sorry, attitudes toward marijuana, um, both medically and recreationally, is one of the few issues that has moved in this sort of same trajectory. Um, we think that our that our theory would apply to a whole host of issues, um, particularly ones where there aren't a lot of strong priors. Uh, for example, a lot of people ask us, well, th- would, would your theory work with abortion if you can somehow, you know, create a, a shared identity with someone and then move their, move their opinion on abortion? We think maybe, um, but less so, because obviously attitudes toward abortion are so entrenched. Um, there are very few people with little information about abortion, so there's a lot of priors. There's a lot of strong priors. So we look at it like, you know, the next generation of graduate students will hopefully take the theory and run with it and apply it to a whole bunch of other issues. Um, our work is sort of moving on to another set of issues, which, you know, I assume that we'll get to at some point. Um, so in short, yeah, we do think it would apply to other things, probably with varied success, depending on the nature of, of the policy. But Marijuana uh, and medical marijuana, we think, is one issue where it would work really well. Um, and I think we've seen a little bit of that in contemporary politics. And and I and I agree that, you know, sort of some of the some of the um, points that you sort of get at in your research with regard to um, what people know and what they don't know um, is is part of what they, you know, sort of where they're basing some of their opinions on. Um, but you're, you know, particularly looking at LGBT studies in political science, you note that political science as a discipline hasn't really engaged very much until very recently 
with regard to questions of sexuality and sexual identity in political science research. Can you elaborate a little bit about how you saw in other disciplines engagement with these topics, but less so in political science? I have lots to say about that one. So, Melissa, if you want to get started. (laughs) (laughs) No, go ahead. You got this, man. Well, political science is, by and large, a a conservative discipline. It's getting less so as time goes on. But I have a whole number of stories in my not very long career about why LGBT politics is not taken seriously in political science. I'll tell one quick story. Um, When I was in the job market, I was told that I wasn't getting an interview for a job and I spoke with the dean and this person said, well, you know, we're, uh, we're looking to hire someone in minority politics. And I said, uh-huh. Um, I study LGBT rights. That, that is minority politics. And her response was, no, no, you know what I mean? Like real minorities. So I kind of scratched my head and said, okay, thank you. Um, and but it's, it's not my- just Brian, right? Like this, this, as a field, we have considered LGBT politics to be kind of not political science. Right. And we've considered black politics and Latino politics and Asian Pacific Islander politics to be politics. Um, and, you know, Muslim American politics and Jewish politics. But somehow LGBT uh, is not considered a serious subject. And and why is it not considered a serious subject? Because the, the the default is that it's advocacy only, and not actually you know a component that we can study in terms of behavior, voting behavior, or rights, or access, or employment protections. Yeah, I think it's dismissed as advocacy, but so is a lot of ethno-racial political science. But I don't know, Brian. Maybe better answer. <laughs> I have a feeling I'm going to get myself in trouble. Well, I'm trying to be careful. I'm trying to be careful too. Um, <laughs> I'm not trying I, I to get you guys in trouble. No, no, it's well, fine. Well, it's, it's just a- that I think there's a lot of discrimination out there, and the the honest truth is that it's very hard uh, for folks to study LGBT politics um, without suffering professionally for it. And so, even if you are interested in studying the community, whether you're a member or an ally, or just interested. Um, it's been generally considered to be a job killer. Like, you know, you want a job or do you want to study LGBT politics? And I think the very small number of folks who are out scholars in our field is testament to that. And other fields like sociology and American studies have not been quite as close-minded. But we've, you know, we've been telling people, we continue to tell people, if you're going to do this, wait till you have tenure. If you're going to do this, you're going to have trouble getting a job. If you're going to do this, you're not going to get published, which is the same stuff we say to people in um, Latino politics and and race and ethnicity politics. But I think it's even worse. It's kind of where we were in the race and ethnicity section 15, 20 years ago. And LGBT politics is just now starting to break out and to be considered real political science. But the, the bias against it is huge. And it's and it's not just LBGT politics because I you know I'm a member of the sexuality section, um, which is brand new, right? It in, at APSA, um, and so it's only been recently that the the APSA has a devoted section to essentially studying sex, sexuality, sexual identity, and so forth. Um, so one, go one ahead. Thing that I, I I was I wanted to add as well. I think. Um, 
trouble for political scientists like myself in the discipline is also born out of the public opinion that we're studying. I think there's a non-trivial number of people, likely you know older people in the discipline, who still believe that being LGBT is a choice, and so is seen as sort of a sort of a, a um, uh, what am I trying to say? It's not a serious topic because you're studying this group that sort of self-selects into it. Well, we know that's not true. We know that no one chooses to be LGBT, but I think that there is this perception, particularly sort of among the old guard, that well, we don't study things that sort of um, our self-select value, right? We don't. This is just a, this group that isn't that isn't it's a lifestyle, right? <laughs> no one would say that about ethno-racial identity, right? You don't choose your skin color, right? Um, well, there's but, there's one woman who tried to, and we all <laughs> laughed her out of the job. So, right? We know that we know that's not true, but somehow, yeah, I agree with Brian. Like, so many people still think that's true, and so that again minimizes the validity of the topic. And so, I mean, so your work is, is really grounded in, in, in so much research and, and so much um, scholarship on public opinion and liberal democ- democratic theory and understanding elite preferences and the impact of elite preferences on the citizens and citizens' opinions on elites. Can you sort of, in, can you sort of talk about a little bit um, some of the most useful uh, scholarship that guided you through um, getting this research off the ground? We read a lot. We read a lot of different kinds of things. I think you can see that in chapter yes. one. It, it, for, for years, it was a hodgepodge of a lit review mess. And it took a long time for us to sort of filter through it and really create the narrative that I, I think it ended up to be a pretty strong chapter. Um, that weaves a lot of these things together. And I think one thing that I kept coming back to was the elaboration likelihood model, which is a little bit random. Um, People aren't as familiar with it as they were in the 80s. But I took a a course actually in communication in graduate school on persuasion and attitude change. And the professor sort of dug up some older theories that aren't really looked at as much in empirical scholarship. And I always thought the, the elaboration likelihood model was really interesting. And Obviously, you've you've read chapter one, you've seen that we rely on it pretty extensively. And so I think that's where it got off the ground for me, theoretically, because it really is a parsimonious model that says, okay, how do we get people from persuasive communication to attitude change or not? And what are the steps that really takes us down that road? Now, the ELM is not quantitative. So that's really, we we were trying to, you know, push it, push in that direction. But I think that model in particular is what got me thinking about what ended up becoming the theory of dissonant identity priming. And and I think, you know, I think you're you're right that the 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 first chapter is impressive in that it takes in so much of the literature across the field of political science and broadly construed. Um, and, and then you also loop back into it in these discussions towards the end of the book with regard to sort of understanding um, public opinion in context of democracy in general. Um, oftentimes we sort of go down our little wormholes and looking at one aspect of something that has to do with how a citizen interacts in a democracy. Um, but you all, you, you were both sort of bringing these changes back into the broader understanding of how a democracy works. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) It's hard when we can't see each other. So, 
you know, I, let, I read a lot of political theory in undergrad and grad school and this idea of a democracy being a place of citizens deliberating and coming to truths and, you know, and the pluses and minuses of different opinions, you know, canceling out and coming to consensus. That whole literature, all that political theory about how democracy is allegedly supposed to work is about having conversations and, and deliberating. And so we're really um, kind of pining away for that maybe not true historical situation where we talked to each other and we had conversations and we compromised. And particularly today with our red and blue media and our, our different social media feeds, it seems like we don't talk to each other. We mute or unfriend or unfollow folks that we don't agree with. And we reject conflicting information and we watch our preferred television station and how can democracy possibly work if we're not having deliberative conversations with people with whom we disagree? So we're really trying to encourage people to go back to that idea. And and I think that, you know, and I think that's one of the things that I also found really captivating with regard to the research is that y- you're you're sort of talking about how people position themselves and understand themselves in, in a kind of way that is both political and non-political. I think if you look at other work like Kathy Kramer's work, which I think is fantastic and captures this really nicely in her latest book, um, The Politics of Resentment, she does such a great job of sort of meeting people where they talk informally, casually to their friends and neighbors and make sense of the way that people actually engage with politics on a very personal and visceral level. And while we don't drill down as, nearly as far as, as she does, it still is this idea that, you know, we want to capture opinion change where it's most likely to happen. And like Melissa alluded to, it's not happening because people are watching something on the news and changing their mind. Um, that just, that doesn't happen as often anymore. But where it might happen is when you're sitting at the Thanksgiving table with, you know, your crazy Uncle Joe and he says something homophobic and something that you disagree with and you say, oh, no, actually, no, that, that's not something that you should be saying. People like me. People like <laughs> Don't me. say that, though. Don't say no, that. No, no, no. No, no, no. You, you, you're, think, you're thinking to yourself, no, this is, you know, this isn't something that, that should be said. So you say to him, no, listen, you know, I'm a member of your family. Look at all the things we have in common. I've, I support LGBT rights and, you know, you should too. Like that, that's really where attitude change happens. And so that's sort of the spirit of the book as well. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that, I mean, that's what I found really interesting about it is it, it sort of, your work sort of talks about how, how possibly you can move across the divide in, in possibly unexpected places and ways. Um, so what are the two of you working on now in terms of research? Are you collaborating again? Are you going in your separate ways? Oh, no, we can't go our separate ways okay. now. <laughs> we get along really well. And, uh, you know, we balance each other really well. So actually we have two pieces that are just coming out and we have more in the works and we've turned our focus now to transgender rights, which I'm sure you know is uh, support for transgender rights is far below that for LGBT rights. A majorities of people, for example, still are not in support of transgender bathroom access rights and there are all kinds of other battles to, to fight in terms of anti-discrimination in housing, in medical care, um, in employment. And so we're now trying to figure out 
ways that we can move public opinion on transgender rights. And um, it's probably not quite the same because this is something where people definitely still think being transgender isn't real, right? That it's a choice. Um, there's a lot less information about it out there. Um, and also talking to people about transgender rights and asking them to be supportive of transgender rights, not asks them to maybe reconsider their own identity and the gender identity that they themselves hold, which can be very threatening and scary. And so it's not going to work quite the same way. I don't think we're going to be able to use the theory of dissonant identity priming for this one. We're going to need something new, but we're working with a third co-author, Logan Casey, who just finished up his dissertation at Michigan and we got some ideas. Cool. So will the three of you come on new books in political science when that work is done? Of course. Oh, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> you have to figure out how to Skype with three people. I know, I know, I know. Extra logistical challenge. Um, I did, I did have one more, one more question because you, you were on kind of an academic book tour. How did that work? Oh my gosh, that was so fabulous. <laughs> so, I mean, basically what we did is we emailed everyone we know at schools all over the country and said, Hey, we wrote a book. We don't have an agent want to have us out for a talk and I've done that before and you know usually a couple of people say yes you get a couple of bookings and this time basically everybody said yes um, about 40 people said yes and we actually couldn't even squeeze them all in but we were on the road from mid-February until just last week and that almost never happens with academic books no, it's really not normal. Uh, when we were introduced at Dartmouth, it was really very funny. Lisa Valdez was saying like this, look, people, this is what real book authors do. This is not what academic authors do. <laughs> um, and it's true. It's it's not normal. It, it was an unusual way to spend a sabbatical, but it was so fun. It was so fun talking about the book on all these different campuses. It was mostly colleges, a couple of high schools, a few bookstores, the response we got was heartwarming, the passion, uh, the interest. It was just, it was beautiful. And I think, um, you know, not only was it rewarding to see how many people were interested in the work and, and were interested in building on it, but the LGBT folks who are in the audiences, often students, you know, you could see how much it meant to them to see themselves and their community being taken seriously by academia. We get a lot of very personal questions from students, um, you know, about their own lives. And so that it just, it meant so much to so many people really made all the traveling, all the driving and hotel stays worth it. And I want to add on a meta level, you can't write a book called Listen, We Need to Talk and then not want to talk to people about it. <laughs> Here's that. Um, I can see that. So we, you know, aside from the academic part of it, we did. We want to go around and talk to people about this because we believe in the work and, you know, we believe that it is important in a deliberative democracy to actually engage people. And um, we know for a fact that many people who we spoke to probably would not have thought about these sets of issues at all. Um so, you know, again, on this meta level, listen, we need to talk and we're coming to your campus. So 
you're going to need to listen. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but we, 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 have the, we have the chance to engage with people who may not yeah. engage with the, the sets of issues. Um, and that was really important to me and, and to us as well. So where can people get a copy of your book if they're not if they haven't gotten it already on your book tour? Right. Well, there are always options online. You can get it at OUP, Oxford University Press. Um, or, of course, you can buy it on Amazon or, or one of the other online bookstores. Or so, even better, you can go into a local bookstore. And if they don't have it, you can ask for it because, you know, you we need to support to your local bookstore. Exactly. Absolutely. That is beautiful. Yes, you should do that. Okay. Or Amazon, that's too. <laughs> Brian and Melissa, thank you so much for being with me today on New Books in Political Science. And I recommend anybody who's interested, everybody should go and get Listen, We Need to Talk, How to Change Attitudes About LGBT Rights by Brian Harrison and Melissa Michelson. Thanks for being here today. 